Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Horace, let's talk about our book. <laughs> we wanted to give some airtime to our project, which is on Kickstarter now. It's been about five, six days since it's been posted as we speak. I don't know how it'll be when you'll hear this, but uh, it's, it's on Kickstarter and it's called Micromobility the First Year. And this is our attempt to publish our own book, which is basically a transcript of the first year of Micromobility podcasts. And the idea before this came because some of you, you followed me when I was doing the beginning of the critical path, you may remember in about 2012, I launched the Kickstarter for the Critical Path first year, which was the book with the first year's podcasts transcribed. And that was a very gratifying experience. Um, not only did I get to go through the editing process to, to go through every word in that first year of my own podcast, but also to be able to give back to those who were our early listeners and to give them an opportunity to, you know, hold on to for posterity a physical representation of the podcast. And one of the stories I tell is that I made it available only with two different rewards. And this was the ebook version and the paper book version. And I was new to the whole Kickstarter idea back then. Well, I think Kickstarter itself was pretty new in 2012. And so I didn't know about all the possible tiers and all the possible rewards and all the other things you can do. I just wanted to make the book available. So I put the the threshold for getting the project funded was what would be my cost in, in doing the transcriptions. And the transcription cost was, was basically hiring a professional team to do the typing of the book, basically. And then I would spend a, you know, a few weeks afterwards editing it, and which, which was, again, for me, the most gratifying part. Um, and then I did my own layout. I put it in a desktop publishing software. Actually, I think it was Pages. It wasn't anything fancy, but I used Pages. And then I got it printed in Maine, USA, uh, with uh, one of the people who was actually an avid listener, Roger, who works and is managing a printing plant in, in Maine. And I think he, he still does this. And, and so we're going to go back to Roger and ask him to print this book. And so I had to learn the whole process of designing the book, laying it out, printing it, getting it registered as an ISBN number and all those good things. And it was very, very fun. And it was, I think we ended up with uh, 800 people uh, signing up for the project and, and backing it. So it was, it was, for me, it's a very fond memory. I still have a few books, about oh, 30 really? or 40 books left over from that print huh. run. And this is one of the things that now you, you'll be able to obtain as part of this project. We're actually bundling, we're going to bundle the critical path, whatever copies I have left. I think we're making 30 available, uh, plus the new book, 
which is, of course, Micromobility, the first year, and this is a two-book set. And uh, that's available as one of the tiers of support you can you can give us. So let me go through that. I'm just going to make one point, which is the Critical Path book. I remember that was the first time that I had the chance to... I'd been listening to the Critical Path for a year, and I remember when that came out, and it was like, wow, this is amazing. It's a, it's a chance for me to be able to go and support you. And that was like, it was awesome. I remember, you know, I, I was living in the Middle East, and you managed to ship me a copy and add a signature. And yeah. Blah, blah, blah. It was great. <laughs> That's right. I, I had to sign them. And that was the funny thing is, so I, because I promised I would get a signed copy, and I also promised, and we're making the same promise this time, by the way, you will get a signed copy, but you will also have your name in the acknowledgments. So anybody who, who backs this project is officially in the first 30 days uh, a, a backer of the project is going to, unless you, you wish to opt out, and we're going to send an email to everybody to confirm whether they're they're willing to have their name in the acknowledgements, but if you are willing to have your name and whatever name you want to put in there as well, you can change it. You can have a, you know, some sort of like pseudonym if you wish, or a Twitter handle or whatever you want. If you want to promote something, you'll have your chance in the acknowledgement section. That's one thing. Uh, signature uh, or signatures, in this case, both Oliver and I will, will sign this book, which is no easy feat to do when you're dealing with hundreds of copies and also need to have them shipped around and printed and everything else. But we're doing that because we feel this is the least we can do to give you thanks for, for backing the project. So for $20, you get to an ebook version. And this is going to be a PDF DRM-free book as a file. You'll be able to download that. And it's as if it was the print version, but it'll be in a PDF file. So that, that's a $20 uh, pledge. If you've pledged $45 or more, you get all the ebook version plus the print edition. And this print edition, again, is signed. It's going to be a limited number. There won't, we're not printing thousands of these, or unless you get pledges for thousands. And we're going to uh, include shipping. U.S. and Canada only, I'm afraid, but an additional $20 for anywhere else in the world. Obscure places. U.S. and Canada. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, I've, this is one of the lessons I learned when I did the first one, is I included shipping, but it turned out to be really expensive to send the books around the world. So this way, we're sort of keeping it a little bit more, more affordable. So that's, that's a $45 pledge. Now, this is a new thing. So this is what I had in the first case, in the original Critical Path book. Now, in, in uh, the addition, in addition, in addition to the print and the, and the ebook version, we have the bundle, as I said. So we have micromobility and the Critical Path in the bundle. We have, again, 30 total. And actually, I'm, as I'm checking the, the website now, already 10 backers. So 10 have gone already. So there's only 20 left. Chop, chop. <laughs> Get it on. Yeah. Listeners, you better get there quickly. <laughs> the first two options that I mentioned, by the way, are unlimited, but this one is limited because there are a certain number of the uh, older book that are uh, still available. Same deal with with shipping. And so that's for $65. And keep in mind, that's only $20 extra for what is now an extremely rare edition of the book, The Critical Path. Next, we have for $125, a really special option here. This is something that Actually, Judd, if you know my co-host from The Critical Path, Judd Rubin has suggested that we include some prints, some visually attractive, uh, frameable quality print. And we're about to release the design of this print. But for now, 
you can assume that it's going to be a lot of graphs or a lot of data at least about micromobility. So this is some of the iconic graphs that I've been presenting in my talks about micromobility, uh, including the if you if you came to the micromobility conference, you would have seen some of those on stage. And we're going to put these in a beautiful glossy printed uh, poster about, I don't know, 28, I forget the exact dimensions, but it's pretty big. It's poster sized. So that includes, again, the ebook, the print book and the print. And that is $125. And we have already three, three backers going for that. Now, this is where we get extravagant. And this is something that again, I've been advised, is, is something I should offer. For $500, you get all the above, except for the Critical Path bundle. You get all the above versions of the book, plus the print, plus you get access to the next micromobility uh, conference. Now, this is a very attractive offer because those conferences go as high as $700, you know, for the ticket. So uh, the next one is going to be in Europe and it's it's not going to be any cheaper. So for $500, you're essentially getting uh, a free ticket already um, in advance. And those were limiting also to a maximum of 30. And now for 750, this is getting really ambitious now, you'll get a chance to get on the call with me and with Oliver for an hour and a half. Now you can ask any question you want, plus all the other goodies before, by the way, but you get a chance to discuss with us any topic. It's essentially free consultation. So it's a private call and we can, uh, we can make our time available to you for an hour and a half. So that's $750, two experts on micromobility on the phone for an hour and a half. Finally, for $1,000, this is the most ambitious of all, only five, of these are available. Only five rewards, I suppose they're called, um, are going to be available, which are dinner with me and Oliver. The idea is to have an entire evening of fun and food and conversation on any number of topics, whatever you would like to talk about. We're making ourselves available for essentially four or five hours. It's likely to be in North America. It's likely to be this year in 2019. So anyway, only five. We have already a backer for this, so we're on the hook to do this anyway. So if you join us, there'll be there'll be more. And so at most, there'll be, I guess, uh, seven people around the table. This is a pretty good deal, actually, if you ask me, $1,000. You know, I've given conferences where we, we charge you know, a few thousand dollars for a day, and it's not as intimate as this because it's, uh, you know, usually you're still in a room with 20 people or so. So, so this is just a very intimate dinner. To get to this, of course, you can just go to kickstarter.com, search for micromobility the first year. Subtitle is a big idea about small vehicles. And um, again, we're, we're about 60% of the way through to, the, uh, to our target. Hopefully by the time you hear this, we'll probably be over our target, in which case, you know the project is going forward and you'll secure your copy of the book and possibly the print and possibly the venues, uh, the dinners, and so on. Hope to uh, make this project happen. There is uh, a number of those podcast episodes have been transcribed and they have been put up on our medium. But what we've done is we've taken all of this and really pulled it down into edited it out so that we'd have less repetition and making just a really concise 
but a good, you know, a really good summary of the ideas that we've discussed over the last year on this. Oh, yes. I've edited a few of these already. The process of editing a podcast into a book is removing a lot of the, as you said, some of the ums and ahs. Some of that is already done in the post-edit, but some of it is also just for legibility. We might remove some uh, redundant words. We might remove certainly timestamps and other things that that clutter the uh, conversation, which you have to do. You get that in the transcript usually. There's quite a bit of work in editing. I remember when I did it, it took me a good month to do the, the critical path. Even though the text was all there, uh, it should take about a month to do this as well. Page count is going to be in the 300 to 350 pages. We're also going to introduce a lot of those graphics that I mentioned that will be in the poster size collage. A lot of those graphs are going to be in the book itself. So it's unlike the critical path, this will be more illustrated. So you could say an illustrated edition of micromobility. And I think it'll be full color as well. So, so I think the technology exists for us to do this book in color. You know, it's going to be a standard, what the Americans would call half of an eight and a half by 11 page. So the, the size of the book is, uh, is a handy size. It's going to be a great project and we're really looking forward to it. Awesome. All right. Well, next up, we're going to have news with Michael Nucker. Okay, how are you going today, Michael? I'm doing well, Oliver. Thanks for having me on. You are most welcome. We've got some very exciting news to run through from the last, uh, for the last couple of weeks. Starting, of course, with my home country, New Zealand. <laughs> we have seen Bird just announced in the last couple of days that they are going to be launching the Bird platform, which we've talked about on the show in the past. In New Zealand, it's going to be coming to Auckland uh, in the next couple of weeks. I would love to hear, Michael, any thoughts that you have on the, the launch of the Bird platform? Yeah, um, I think we first heard about this a few months ago now, and it's finally being surfaced with a little more detail now. And from what I've heard and what the news articles have been saying is that Bird's strategy here is to focus their branded Bird platform or their Bird service in the United States and Europe while leveraging the Bird platform in countries such as New Zealand, your home country, and select markets in Latin America and uh, in Canada. And so you're seeing Bird who spent, you know, last six months or year working, uh, spending R&D cash on their own Bird Zero, their ruggedized shareable scooter. Yeah. And now opening that up for other people to buy, you know, a, a set of 100, 200 plus yep. and run their own service. And so it'd be interesting to see how and who is going to roll this out. And, they, you know, there's rumors of uh, that happening in New Zealand. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. We've known that there's a company here called Wave, which is the brand that I think it's going to be rolling out under. Um, we don't know that for sure, but that's that's where it's indicating at the moment. Wave got a permit back in, uh, I think, October uh, or even earlier when, when Lime was launching. So there were three operators in New Zealand and Wave and, and there was another one called Onzo that didn't end up launching. And it's been very interesting because obviously Lime, Lime has been going very well down here. And it's, I think, an interesting question around like having an operator that's coming into the market, but it's not one of these sort of like the key operators, right? It'll be an interesting way to see. It's not like a tier one, 
you know, hey, we're coming in with our operations team. It's actually like a local entrepreneur being en- enabled through this franchising model. The one part, and this is, this is the part that I don't get, is just around the economics of this thing. Because like, Bird's losing a lot of money as it is on every scooter. How is that going to make sense for a local entrepreneur to go lose a lot of money on every scooter when they have to pay 20% to Bird on top of everything that they already do for their own losses? Yeah. My question is, are they going to disclose these numbers, the unit economics for the Bird Zero? to potential you know uh, fleet operators entrepreneurs out there uh because that'd be really interesting if they actually become transparent with this information you know if i was evaluating this program i would definitely want to look at you know what, what the average revenue is in lifespan of these vehicles are before i commit to putting out a thousand of these vehicles on on, on my city streets so uh, i'd be interested to see how this rollout is is going to come about yeah yeah well it, we we will watch it with uh, with much interest i will be one to watch it very closely uh-huh. given that i spent a lot of time in auckland and i would love to have an alternative to lime unfortunately they limes had a bit of a rough time recently because they had a safety issue with uh, their hardware and the entire country got shut down and lime had to be pulled off the streets for about two weeks and they finally finally just got back online it's, it's gonna be welcome to have a second player in the market and hopefully there'll be bird zeros as well yeah exactly yeah awesome okay what's the other news what's the other exciting stuff from the last couple of weeks I think on the European side, we've seen obviously you know four or five different players raise considerable amounts of capital uh, in Europe, and most recently the Voy company out of Stockholm, I believe. Yeah, I think the Swedish. Yeah, they they just announced a thirty million dollar round on top of a previously announced fifty million dollar round a few months ago. And again, this is evolving so quickly. There's multiple well-funded players in the European market. Uh, and it's interesting to see, or it's interesting that, that there hasn't been any consolidation quite yet. And it sounds like, and we've been hearing that companies are continuing to raise more capital and go at this independently. There's been some rumors of consolidation and mergers, but we have yet to see that. And boy specifically is interesting the fact that their their core markets are in the nordic countries so sweden uh, denmark and i believe norway one of the most interesting claims i've seen over the last few weeks is that voy is saying that they're going to be profitable in these nordic markets by the end of q1 i think that's a bold claim in the middle of winter (laughs) in the middle of winter yeah (laughs) in the nordic countries wow Uh, you know they're using the segway shared models uh, like most other players, but you have to think what's different about the Scandinavian countries, right? Is, you know, Copenhagen, Stockholm have brilliant bike infrastructure, and then you look at the community. Are they treating the vehicles better than we, what we're seeing in, in a lot of the U.S. and other markets around the world? Yeah. I'd be curious to see how this is going to play out um, and if they actually can achieve profitability good on them but I'll, I'll wait and see yeah i'm i'm fascinated by that i mean it helps as well if they're the only operators in those markets because i know in the highly competitive markets that's where it sort of starts to get um the economics start to get dodgy whereas like single single operator markets you could make a far more plausible yeah those typically yeah towards profitability earlier i think that's a great point there you, you know most of these markets i believe they're the single operator i know stockholm has had 
probably 10 or more companies approached the city asking for permits to deploy. But I think Voy is the lone wolf in most of these markets right now. And I, yeah, that's a great point. We don't know how long that will last and then you know how that will actually affect the economics in the long term of their operating business. Yeah, and we're going back as well to what I was talking about with the Bird platform launch in New Zealand through the Wave brand. The thing is, I mean, I don't know the, the details of Lime's economics in New Zealand, but I get the sense that they're actually doing pretty well down here. And the, the interesting thing that we see in this general business as well is the importance of the regulatory moat. So actually being able to defend yourself from a regulatory perspective by being one or of only a couple of operators in the market. And I know that Lime's been trying to expand uh, and yeah. get more scooters in the markets that it operates in in New Zealand. And Wave took like, it's it got the permit like six months ago and didn't launch. And Lime was like, hey, we, we really, really, really want to expand. But the council, because it had effectively already granted these permits to a couple of different operators, said, no, you can't like effectively wait, wait until the others have launched and then we'll see which i think is just this it is makes it incredibly challenging for entrepreneurs trying to launch into this space um that so much of it is dictated by government policy interesting cool and then the the final news that i wanted to bring up is the really exciting news that came through from sacramento which showed that of the downtown area where jump is operating in sacramento and california they're getting more trips on the jump bikes than they are on uber like uh, the traditional ride sharing service Uber came out with a study or some numbers and it was reported in the local Sacramento newspaper that the service areas where Jump e-bikes are actually operating on non-rainy days, Jump is actually doing 52% of all Uber trips to Uber's rides business, which is 48%. That's incredible after you know six, nine months of operations in Sacramento with only, I think, just over a 1,000 electric bicycles uh, in the city, they're already <laughs> eating that much market share from Uber's rise business. And that's an incredibly encouraging signal, uh, especially as this winter drags on in North America uh, with a lot of negative press around scooter sharing in general. It's, it's good to see micromobility you know, have the, these positive spots coming and emerging in Sacramento, California, which is you know one of these coastal cities of the U.S. that everyone talks about, like Santa Monica or D.C. and San Francisco or Portland. I, I think that's really encouraging uh, for Jump and their expansion strategy uh, throughout 2019. And I, I'm curious, you know, to see. You know, if Sacramento success will be replicated yeah, totally. in other like similar markets, maybe not these tier one mega cities in North America, but, you know, the smaller 100, 300,000 per people cities uh, around the world. Any thoughts on that, Oliver? No, no, only, only that I just, having used the jump service a bunch, I can see that it sort of fulfills a different function than the scooters. And we've talked about this in the past in terms of the distances and stuff that people typically ride on these things. But also as well that like just a well-functioning bike share system, dockless, all that sort of stuff is very competitive with the existing rideshare model. And people, if they're just doing short trips from one place to another, then they'll take the best, most effective option to get around. And um, I think it's really exciting that cities are starting to see that and recognize that. And I, uh, I hope directionally that's, that's going to be replicated in other cities, as you say. Yeah. Awesome. Well, look, thank you very much, Michael, as always. Uh, great to chat. Thank you, Oliver. Next up, we will be having the section from the Micromobility Conference on Venture Capital. So that's with Riley, Julie, uh, Demir, and Greg. 
But before that, we would like to thank our sponsors for the episode, Joyride. There are countless current and aspiring micromobility fleet operators out there. If you're one of these, then you probably know you've got what it takes to run a fleet efficiently and profitably. You're doing your research, reading blogs and articles, downloading reports, and listening to this podcast. The metrics from those venture-funded companies are mind-blowing, but you wonder how things would look if you focused on your local market. Joyride provides the custom white-label mobile apps and scalable backend that allows everybody from the small local operator to transit agencies to launch their own micromobility fleets within weeks. Plus, they have partnerships with all the major manufacturers, so you're guaranteed to have the highest quality hardware when you launch your own bikes or scooters. Here's an example of what one of Joyride's customers has accomplished. The operator launched with a fleet of 200 electric scooters in their hometown, and within two months they were making six figures from rides, all while competing in a city that already had some of the largest scooter share companies operating. This doesn't even include the additional revenue they're generating through the Joyride advertising platform that allows you to connect your customers with retail partners around the city. Maybe you didn't think you could compete in the micromobility space before. Maybe you thought the market was already controlled by a few giants. Joyride levels the playing field with the, for your operators, allowing anybody to succeed with their fleet. Whether you're an independent operator with a desire to launch locally or a transit agency looking to solve the first and last mile for your customers, Joyride helps you find the mobility share solution that works. Start your own scooter or bike share system today. See more at joyride.city. That's joyride.city. It's time to join the global micromobility movement. Mention the Micromobility Podcast and receive your first month free. Thank you to Joyride for supporting 5x5 and micromobility. And a happy hour, a ferry ride, a BART ride, some sort of modal ride along the Bay Trail. But it's money, so it's okay. Last panel of the day is our capital panel, uh, a very, very important part, and you know what I don't essentially call a building block of this industry, of course, is capital. I'm very excited that we have Greg Lindsay, uh, to actually lead this panel. Greg is the Director of Strategy for Locomotion, which is a fantastic transportation event down actually in LA that just happened. And with that, I want to bring Greg on the stage and Greg will bring the panelists. Let's give Greg a big round of applause. Good luck, Greg. Good luck, Julie. Good luck. Thank you. I don't know if this is on. And now it's time for the money. Julie was telling me right before we came on here that she and Riley, two of our three panelists, were at a dinner this week where about, what, I think, 15 or so uh, VCs and entrepreneurs, and as a sort of icebreaker, they're asked to go around the table and ask, what is the most overhyped category of startup right now? And to a man and woman, except for Riley and Julie, they said scooters. Um, so while micromobility might be a world-conquering category, and we'll come back to some of this about the world that micromobility will make and how we will build it and finance it, in the very immediate turn, uh, it seems that micromobility appears to be going through something of a little bit of a rough patch. We were joking on the call, if Bird was the fastest to a billion, it might also be the fastest to be going through the trough of disillusionment on Gardner's uh, quadrant, um, which puts Demir in the awkward spot as the Bird rep on, on our panel. But I guess there's an open question here. I, I'm curious, we'll, we'll start with this as the granularity of this is, is you know, are our scooters overhyped? Are they only overhyped this particular moment and then it flattens out again? You know, what, what, are your, what are your thoughts at this moment in Q1 2019 about where micromobility is as an investable category? We'll start with extremely granular folks and then we're going to pan out uh, until about 4.58. I think Tamir should go first. <laughs> All right. Um, thanks for having me, folks. It's great to be here. It's 
pretty crazy to see how many people are interested in this topic because uh, it doesn't feel like scooters have been around that long. To answer your question concisely, you know, we got excited about scooters uh, for, for two reasons. One, because of the team that we invested in is a team that has been innovating in transportation for the last decade uh, and has been thinking a lot about how modalities of transportation are going to change, uh, especially as cities urbanize, get more and more dense, the problems that that's going to cause. Um, I was actually taking an Uber in LA today, talking to my driver, and he was like, oh, I'm excited for the Super Bowl. And I was like, oh, why is that? He's like, when the Super Bowl is on, I figure out where the hotspot is and I go drive into it and I make a lot more money. You know, with the ride sharing, I think that's one of the problems that's caused, right? Uh, it attracts a lot of drivers to cities and creates a lot of congestion. Uh, and so we have to think about new ways to, to create flows of, of people. And, and I do think that micromobility is, is, a, is an exciting alternative uh, that can help people get around cities more efficiently. To answer your question specifically about is it overhyped and going through this trough of disillusionment, the, the reason why investors got excited is because they saw this huge potential new market open up, right? Transportation markets, when you see them, they can be trillion dollar opportunities. So I think a lot of investors got excited to pile in and to contribute capital and, and to hopefully be a participant in that. Uh, but I think with this business, you know, there, there are a few realities that, that people have, have come to understand. Uh, these are capital intensive businesses. You're building a fleet. You have to operate this fleet efficiently. Uh, you have to figure out how to make margin. You have to figure out how to keep the vehicles on the streets and keep them away from people who want to steal them and vandalize them. Uh, so I think we're going through, a, you know, the, the most importantly, a, a kind of hardware wave right now where uh, I think personally I'm most excited about what the hardware is going to look like in a quarter or two. I think that's going to create a very viable service economically. Uh, but I think, uh, you know, that, that's what people are most focused on these days. Thank you. Julie, Riley. Yeah, I'll jump in and, you know, boldly say, and this is not bold at this conference, I really deeply believe in micromobility, and I don't think we should be in a trough of disillusionment. Um, I honestly think that we're just at kind of an initial stage. What we're finding now is there's a reason that these elements are happening. One, urbanization is huge. That's obviously core to our thesis at the Urban Innovation Fund. But the other element is that congestion has happened really rapidly, and it's happened partially as a byproduct of, you know, this ride-sharing evolution. We're having more um, kind of vehicles in cities. And so we need creative solutions. And I think what's really exciting about this conference is you guys are all the believers, and we are trying to put capital behind you. So we're excited to see what you guys come up with. Yeah, first of all, thanks for having me. Yeah, and I, I think this is a collection of believers with, you know, Horace as the high priest of micromobility. Um, so I feel, feel good being a disciple. I think micromobility is in, it's just in a really e explosive platform in its early experimental phase. So, you know, what the vehicles look like right now, how durable the vehicles are, it's a testament to the, there's something that the consumer likes about it that they're willing to do it on really substandard hardware. Um, so I liken it to, you know, like, you have people who are getting out of the shower and they're using a, you know, a Kleenex to dry themselves off, and we're complaining that they're taking showers, and, and the question should be, can we just build them a bath towel? And we're so early in the hardware part of this that it's, it's almost embarrassing to the hardware people, um, but the consumer demand is amazing. So that, therefore, investors pile in in some categories more than they should, in some companies more than they should, but there's something here, and you know, Horace and, and this church will figure it out over the coming 
few years. I'm referring to Horace as the high priest of the Church of Micromility does not reassure me that we're not in a cult. So thank you, Riley. <laughs> But let's jump to the hardware since you bring this up with this. You know, so Tony Ho, who did not drop this flame today, but I did love this quote to the FT, is that we would like to be the arms dealer rather than fighting the war ourselves. Um, and I'm curious, number one, you know, yeah, are the only people who are going to make money in this the hardware manufacturers, given the sort of, you know, this push towards commoditization already of the fleet services? And second, why do we only have one arms dealer? Like, where will the second one come from, and, and how will that evolution occur? I mean, I, I, I'm a thousand percent with you, Demir, on the notion that, like, we've barely begun to see the evolution of this coming out of the Chinese electronics manufacturing stack. But I'm really amazed that, like, given all of that talent and manufacturing capacity, we basically have one manufacturer so far, and then a couple of copycats. So I'm curious your thoughts on like how that will emerge like you know we're at the moment perhaps where the big three emerge or we're at that moment where like you know like um, you know Benz is building electric uh, contraptions and we've yet to see rationalized automakers so I'm curious how that stack might emerge this time I don't know if Demir going to take that first you're, you're yeah. into happy to share my commentary I, you know I guess I'll start by saying that birds already diversified their vehicle base so you know we're not solely reliant on uh, Segway or Ninebot scooters anymore we're actually partnered with a few different contract manufacturers you know, when I think about other transportation assets, I think scooters are pretty different. You know, I, I don't really think this is like the airline industry where you're going to have Boeing and Airbus and that's it. Uh, the complexity of these vehicles isn't as high, not nearly as high. It's, it's orders of magnitude and kind of, kind of less complex. So I think it's, it's, it's going to be more akin to the, to the automobile industry, right? You're going to have OEMs of all sorts all over the world uh, competing to make the, the best hardware. Uh, I think you know, the strategy for Bird is, is pretty clear. We, we want to be a vertically inter integrated uh, mobility service. So we're going to manufacture our own scooter. In fact, I actually just got to test the latest prototype in LA uh, earlier this week. And I think, you know, similar to what Riley said, it is going to start to seem kind of meaningfully different from what people have experienced to date. Um, actually, I was, I was calling, uh, talking to my colleague, Martin, who's, who's here, and we're talking about how scooters and mopeds are going to converge and, and, and what kind of the, the form factor is going to look like uh, a year or two from now and, and, and how starkly different it's going to be from what people know. Um, so that's, that's my quick take is we believe in, in vertical integration. You feel that the supply chains that are going to come in are going to remain from the toy and, and you know, smartphone supply chains or do you feel that the motorcycle and auto supply chains are going to come down into micromobility? I mean, I think that's a, it's a great question. You know, if you ask the spin guys, I'm, I'm sure that they're going to rely on, on some of Ford's manufacturing knowledge to, to help them, you know, build some, some awesome scooters. You know, I know the Skip guys have amazing hardware backgrounds as well and are going to find some amazing partners or, or build these things themselves and build out the capacity themselves. I don't have a really kind of specific answer. I, I can't comment too much about, you know, where birds scooters of the future are going to come from. I think right now a lot of uh, a lot of the operators are relying on contract manufacturers who are familiar with either retail versions of these scooters, which are more toy-like in nature, and there are some conversations with auto manufacturers. We'll, we'll see where they go, but um, it's too soon to have a, a, a good answer for you. Well, Riley, coming back to you before you get back to Julie, Alex referred to it earlier, but, but, but Riley, what is the Ford F-150 of micromobility? And, you know, I mean, what does it look like? How does the vehicles evolve? And, you know, and also there's a, the notion there that it's a consumer play, a consumer preference for a larger vehicle, too. So, you know, I don't know if there's a business model evolution aspect of that tweet. Uh, well, I think there's, you know, the, the point of asking the question, is there an F-150 of micromobility, is to say, you know, there's a lot of just normal human behaviors that people want to do whether it's shopping or putting a kid on board or putting another adult on board. And uh, today's scooter is really good, you know, 
getting a VC to a coffee meeting in South Park, and that's kind of about it. Um, but the actual real life that people live has a lot of utility attached to vehicle trips. So the point of that is they like, where's the utility in a scooter? And it's not found in a vehicle that you have to use two hands to operate, which is today's nine-bot kick scooter. Um, the other maybe more interesting question is where's the Mercedes-Benz diesel taxi of micromobility? Because those are, if you think about it, you know, if you're in sort of mainland Europe or parts of Asia, you know, those old Mercedes taxis that have, they're two times as expensive up front to buy, but run three times as long as a comparable taxi. So where is that version for the micromobility space? And I think that's a really interesting thing that you could build for maybe $1,000 or $1,500 that lasts longer than, than these scooters have been lasting. So I'm, I'm totally in agreement. Like the product development part of micromobility is, I think we come back here in a year, there'll be sort of a blooming of all these different ideas. And that's really exciting. Yeah, to be honest, I mean, I think we're more interested in the platform kind of helping support and enable the hardware piece than we are in the actual hardware, just myself personally, and I know that there are some other VCs that probably feel similarly. Um, in the previous panel, it was all about software, which is really exciting. Um, one of our portfolio companies is there, Ride Report. They're doing really interesting work, and what I think is fascinating is not only are they working with operators, but they're really thinking about the other side of the puzzle, which is the cities. And I know we heard from the cities, and it's so exciting to hear from them because the folks that are in this room are obviously the most forward-thinking. They're you know, innovative, they know about solutions, and they want to work with private tech solutions. Um, and I think that seeing more of the ride reports of the world, seeing more um, kind of software solutions that are helping enable this micro-mobility rise is really exciting to us. I want to get to you. I'm curious, when you, when you guys are looking to invest in, in anybody in micro-mobility, how much do their ideals matter to you with regards to getting people out of their cars, and how much does it ultimately matter to your investment? So, for example, I want to say that, you know, I think all of us believe in this room that this is, we are trying to fight a war on the single-passenger car, but I'm also, the flip side of that is I think of Chris Thomas, who recently left Fontanellis, who is not a big believer in some of the huge valuations, and he had spoken to another VC who I don't know, but he told me, he's like, he's like, why are you investing in these companies? And that VC told Chris, because it's monetizing walking. And, and I come back to that because if it's monetizing walking, then it's not, I'm not sure this is the kind of sort of public policy goals I want, uh, um, you know, sort of subverted. So I'm curious, you know, when you're talking to these companies, is that what they're telling you? Like, are they telling you we're going to monetize walking and you guys will mint money if you're in on this? Uh, I'm curious, like, what, what motivates you to invest in a particular company beyond the team and beyond that, um, you know, and whether they really believe in what, in what they're telling you? Well, I can just jump in quickly and say, I think the days where a technology startup comes in and kind of thrusts their platform or service into a city's um, purview is over. You know, I think Uber really made that popular when they came in and they, you know, basically used a large army chest of dollars to lobby. But I think that approach of not being very collaborative, being seen as incredibly antagonistic towards cities is really over. Um, and earlier, Raf from Lyft described, you know, that there's supply, there's demand, and then there's cities. And people don't often talk about this third part of the market. For us, that regulatory risk is real. And when we think about, you know, companies that are going to be huge, scalable, billion-dollar businesses, they not only need to attract a lot of customers and riders and usage, but they need to know how to play nice with cities because they ultimately need cities as either partners or at least de facto saying you can operate here and not giving them a cease and desist that'll disrupt their entire business model. So for us, I would say that, you know, that mission-driven approach 
goes hand in hand with business outcomes and solutions that I think we need in the transit space. Yeah, so I'd say what we really look for is people who are solving problems for consumers. I'm a consumer-focused investor at Index, um, and I spend all of my time thinking about you know, what are the different pain points in a consumer's life and how can you solve them and what is changing to enable new solutions and innovative solutions. I think, you know, when you think about micromobility, there's a few things that enable this, right? It's the plummeting cost of batteries um, in particular um, and then, you know, climate change, urbanization, traffic, et cetera, are, are making these pain points more evident in a consumer's life. Um, so I think it, it starts there for us. You know, on the topic of, of the founder and how missionary they have to be, I think at Index, we really get excited about kind of the missionary, passionate founder who wants to dedicate their life to solving a problem. I think with Travis and, and the rest of his founding team, you, you kind of get that. I mean, they saw Lyft from the early days, then Uber, then you know Bird, and even before Lyft, they were working on transportation-related projects. Cherry was a startup that they were building, if anyone's familiar. Um, so that's, that's really where, where it kind of where, where it starts and ends with us. And you know, I think the thing we get most excited about is when uh, there's a pain point that people don't even realize they had, um, or, or there's an experience that people kind of didn't even realize that they wanted, which creates a new market that people hadn't really experienced before. But when we ran surveys before we made our bird investment, we asked the question uh, to 1,500 Santa Monica residents. It was a blind panel, 1,500 residents, 85% of which had used or known about bird and we asked them what their main applications of the service were. Did you use them for commuting? Did you use it for entertainment? Or uh, did you use it for convenience, getting to the gym, going to the grocery store? And the interesting results of that survey was that it was actually roughly a 33% split between each of, of the categories. So it's not, you know, that bird is just a replacement for bike rental shops on beaches or that it's a car replacement. It's actually kind of addressing a lot of use cases and, and that got us excited. A bit of a granular question for the three of you. You know, so far, I mean, we've seen the rollout of, of micromobility as generally as fleet, and it's paid by the minute. I'm curious, we started to see some innovation around some of the business models, you know, of course, more consumer stuff, but I think there's also Brooklyn-ness. We've talked about Riley, where, you know, you now have basically financing options and, and sort of subscription services. And I'm curious, you know, if you have particular thoughts on, you know, once all of the existing micromobility providers really lay the groundwork for this, and as Salito was saying earlier, make it not just the scooter niche, but it's just a form of mobility. Then do we start to see the rise of direct-to-consumer purchase empires, uh, you know, more financing options? I'm curious what you guys think are promising about like, what you know, micromobility 2 or 3.0 looks like as investable propositions. Yeah, um, I think part of making the, sc the scooters more durable, they're going to get heavier. So you know, the 26-pound Segway 9-bot is gonna probably have to get 40 pounds, and when it does so, it'll change the vehicle dynamics and probably change some of the, the loss ratio. But I think it's gonna open up for some people um, the need to have like a 10 pound scooter that they might own, and you might be willing to pay something for that. You might be leasing that. So that's kind of interesting in the way that the business model around durability is gonna open up new product lines. But I also think that there's some other things that probably could be um, tucked into the existing sharing models like reservations that Right now, you know, some people have tried but haven't really been that popular, but it's one of the pain points for people in a high-density area, like getting out of a train in the morning. If you don't run out of the Caltrain, you might not get one of those scooters. So the reservation piece is probably a, something you'll see. Um, and then on the leasing side, we think there's probably an opportunity for that. So there, there are probably three or four new business models we haven't really seen yet. Um, that all have a corresponding hardware answer to them. 
um, and it's too early for that as well. When I think about micromobility, I don't just think about the rental model, so I don't want to overemphasize just bird and scooter sharing. Um, I think personal ownership is, is absolutely going to exist. Um, one of the investments that we made at Index is in an electric bike manufacturer called Cowboy. You know, that company is very much a direct-to-consumer business, trying to sell transportation asset to a consumer. Um, they've created an amazing experience around it. And you can see it anecdotally, right, in San Francisco as well. After the introduction of some of these um, rental services, you've seen people buy their own scooters. So I think you know, you're going to have interesting opportunities pop up uh, uh, around that. You know, if you're uh, the personal owner of a scooter, you're still going to need to maintain it. Maybe you want to GPS equip it so you can track it or so that you can rent it and actually monetize it. You know, those are going to be opportunities for other businesses, um, and we're, we're excited to explore those as well. Yeah, I would jump in and say we have no idea what the B2C and B2B models will look like of the future, but we are excited about them. What we're really excited about as well is this idea of cities as essentially helping take back their streets. So we've talked a lot about the concept of you know, infrastructure and these fixed assets that cities own that are frankly wearing with use and you know they're getting more and more use with micro-mobility solutions. I think there are a lot of interesting and creative approaches that you know, companies can use to help cities basically reclaim the streets or even think about things like you know, monetization or compliance, regulation things that are, you know, frankly, really unsexy, but I think there's a lot of opportunity for cities to actually make a lot of money that ho could hopefully get funneled back into making infrastructure work better for all of us. I was going to say, we're, we're on the cusp. I don't think it's been really remarked upon today, but we're on the cusp of Los Angeles, for example, where the CEO of Metro and supposedly Eric Garcetti himself, the mayor, are going to come out for congestion pricing. And, you know, the state of New York, where I live, is coming out for congestion pricing uh, to generate these funds and control this policy. So I think it's interesting. I was looking at the title of this again. You know, we had a, we had a cities, we had a uh, software for micromobility and capital. We're really sort of sitting between the three as a sort of infrastructure layer that hasn't been addressed. And so, yeah, if you could talk a bit about it, you and Riley both have portfolio companies and I think Demir might as well, but you've got uh, Ride Report, which was just in the past panel. And, or, I'm sorry, you've got Curbflow in particular as well, um, which is building software for managing the curb, and Trucks is in Cord, which came out of Sidewalk Labs, which I know. And these are startups that are building the software to basically create API layers to price the streets to allow us to sort of divvy up how this lane space works. So, I, you know, if you want to take a moment to talk a bit about what Curbflow is up to, but also if you can imagine, you know, what other areas that might open up there as we create this sort of hybrid software hardware infrastructure layer to manage micromobility in other modes. I think micromobility, where it is, is actually one of the fundamental questions. Where it is when it's traveling on a ride with a consumer, where it's parked, um, it's fundamentally at its core, if you're not thinking about whether you call it real estate or, or location, um, that's actually the, the fundamental part of micromobility that's really fascinating, what lane it's riding in, for example. And so, you know, even the most popular bird scooter is only on the road maybe two hours a day. So it's really the other 22 hours of the day that you have to think about. Um, and if you're not, you're quickly going to go out of business. So the, where they are, the other parts of the day are at a charger's house, you know, and maybe they're in the furniture zone. And the management of that is, is quite complex. We think that there's actually going to be sort of a boomerang to cities that are basically going to take over their... Uh, existing docks and turn them into sort of dockless hubs. And so one of our companies, Drop Mobility, which started in Canada and is now 
moving into the U.S., um, that's what they do. And they're going after basically flipping those existing um, hard assets in a city to facilitate more micromobility. So the real estate piece of this for us is really fascinating. And the mobility companies that don't have an idea about the real estate, I think, are just, they have a huge blind spot. So the sense that I get is that cities are really, really mad. They're pissed. People are coming out, and they are coming out with business models where they're throwing hardware and other kind of, you know, rides on the street, and they have no say on it. They basically are asking for forgiveness instead of permission, and then cities are kind of the big bad wolf that are trying to police this. And I think what's exciting about a lot of the companies that we're working with, with including Ride Report, is that you know they're really helping re-empower cities and change the paradigm from being reactive to being proactive. I mean, we're all excited, and I think as a consumer, the proliferation of micromobility is an awesome, awesome thing. But you could already sense that these cities, many of them are really pissed. You know, look at San Francisco. They basically decided to give two scooter operators license to operate here. You saw them on stage earlier today. Those two were the ones that probably had the least amount of experience, and they also, you know, hadn't pissed anybody off yet. Um, and so I think there's, you know, an opportunity here for companies to start working with government to help them reshift that paradigm and help um, cities take back their streets. So we only have a few minutes left here of our panel for the day and for those catching the ferry. So I want to pull the aperture way back. Let's, pan, let's zoom all the way out or, or pan all the way back. I'll have to figure out which is the correct metaphor. But, you know, National Climate Assessment and the IPCC basically have argued that we have 12 years to decarbonize our economy or we will start destroying the world. And we also know that according to the IPCC, the transportation, ground transportation in particular, is the biggest contributor to greenhouse gases. So we have to go through this epochal shift and remake the world just as, as James was alluding to earlier, Ford and Kaiser and others remade the world in a relatively stunningly short period of time in their image. Uh, my favorite quote in this is Christopher Leinberger argued that, you know, at the time that um, they were confirming the head of GM to be the Secretary of Defense and he supposedly said what's good for GM is good for the country, arguably it was true that like a third to a, f a half of the U.S. economy was related in some way to the automobile, the construction of suburbia, the financing of cars. So I'm panning out and thinking about the evolution of micromobility is what kind of world will we make? I mean, Bird hinted at it with the Save Our Streets challenge, the notion they were going to help finance infrastructure. And then, of course, I think that's on pause. But, but it alluded to the notion that just as we once had the GM streetcar conspiracy, we could one day have the micromobility you know, funding pool to build new types of infrastructure to get people out of cars. So asking you in the role of Sears here, as VCs are often called upon to be, the philosopher kings of the 21st century, um, how do you think th that we can achieve this vision in you know, a decade and change? Yeah, I'm happy to go first. So I try to zoom out and think about this, and we've had a lot of conversations about this at Index. It's an interesting time in venture, right? I think we've seen the maturation of the internet. A lot of greenfield opportunities are disappearing, and we're trying to figure out, you know, what is that next revolution going to be? And if you think about, you know, the last major ones, you had the industrial revolution, right? You made manufacturing much more efficient, often at the expense of the environment. Then you had the technological revolution, which at the same thing, it's making life so much more efficient and entertaining and engaging for, for people and easier. But again, it's at the expense of the environment. We're putting up data centers everywhere, um, et cetera. And so I think that the thinking that we're starting to have at Index is that the next revolution is going to be the environmental one. Uh, how do we make things run more efficiently in a more energy efficient manner, et cetera? I don't think that necessarily means we're going to be investing in solar farms, but 
we do want to figure out, you know, you know, map kind of the largest contributors to global warming and, and figure out how do you make those contributors more efficient. And we've actually gone through this list and it's, it, it's not just transportation, right? It's refrigerators are actually one of the largest contributors to climate change because the chemicals that go in them cause huge environmental damage. Livestock, so switching people to plant-based diets is going to have a huge impact if we can make that widespread. And then of course transportation, but that's like number 10 on the list. So, you know, I, I think across the board, we're, we're, we're thinking about it and, and trying to find opportunities. Um, but, you know, with transportation specifically, I think, you know, you're going to go through a, an electric revolution. I think a lot of cities, you're seeing it in Europe already, are, are only going to allow cars that, that are electric uh, to operate uh, in the heart of the city. Anything diesel powered or gasoline powered won't actually be able to enter the, the urban core. So, you know, I think these conversations are going to be more and more relevant over the, the next few decades, as you mentioned. I think, you know, micromobility is obviously one of the great sort of levers we can all push on and, and cities can help facilitate and Bird can help build bike lanes, et cetera. Um, I guess one word of caution I have is I, I disagree with Horace's definition of micromobility, um, which is around weight, you know, and I, my concern is if we put too heavy a vehicle in a bike lane that it's actually going to have a really negative effect on micromobility long term. Um, you know, his working definition is 500 kilograms, which is around, you know, 1,000, 1,100 pounds. And that's, I just disagree with that. I think that micromobility in a bike lane, the device should be no heavier than the occupant. And you should be able to pick it up. And if you have an accident, it should be, you know, human skeleton to human skeleton, not into a carbon fiber or metal frame. So my big concern about a lot of this movement is that we have to be really careful over the next year when we're defining what micromobility is. And there's an SAE standards group that's getting put together by um, Annie Chang, who's here today. And I think it's gonna help define what, what micromobility is actually called and what levels there are. Um, but that's the thing about micromobility where we have the, the ability to do some really great things that can help some of these miles to move into greener miles if we're really particular about those definitions. Yeah, for us, I think a big thing we've seen is urbanization has been one of the most catalytic trends of our time and just, you know, how transformative that's been for our cities. So in the U.S., 81% of Americans are urbanized. In the world, it'll be two-thirds by the year 2030. Um, and so when you're looking at those kind of trends, I really believe transportation has been at the forefront. You know, there's been huge market opportunities. We've seen a real shift in between car ownership to ride sharing to now micro mobility. Um, and I think there are a lot of other opportunities. You know, if we think about housing, affordability, economic empowerment, equity, there are so many other sectors that I think still need to make a ton of strides in order to kind of adjust to this new, you know, narrative around urbanization. And so I'm really excited because I think transportation's been at the forefront, but I think there's still a lot of room to grow. And there's a real power dynamic between, you know, transit-oriented development, housing, equity. Um, and, you know, my hope is that technology can be an enabler for positive change. And, you know, hopefully we can all be part of that vision. Yeah, that's a, a great vision to think about this. I mean, the, the holistic stack of what micromobility can do for cities. I worked on a project last year for the Bloomberg Philanthropies. Imagine what this class of evolved micromobility can do and combined with mass transit to basically extend the developable area and allow us to actually, you know, unlock the potential of neighborhoods that were previously just too far to walk. So, um, so I hope that's right. Well, with some closing thoughts here, I just want to add that I look forward to seeing you all here again next year. But before that, I hope I'll also see all of you in Los Angeles in November at LA Commotion. Uh, 
where we'll be doing much like this, only with more Salida Reynolds, I, I promise. I mean, we, we run Salida ragged uh, on our panels, so we can have her up there. Um, but please, a round of applause for our panelists, and thank you all so much for coming.